BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Papaya Podcast. I'm your hostess, Tran Hermostis, Sarah Nicole, and each week I'm going to be dishing out some sweetness mixed in with some seeds of wisdom or something like that. So get ready to get inspired, get candid, get real, because we are all in this digital space together. I am so excited to welcome today's guest, Alex Light, to the show. You may recognize her from the gram, Alex Light underscore LDN. She's very known for going viral for so many different reasons, bringing up and building awareness around diet culture. She talks about body confidence. She talks about how to feel better in your body, eating disorder recovery, and of course, fashion, beauty, life as well. Her story is similar to mine, but intersects in very different ways and the way that we've healed and talk about it. And she has so much insight into the why. Why do we think this way? Why do we feel this way? I'm excited to bring her on to have these conversations and ultimately help us ask ourselves why. Alex, welcome to the show. Cute little British self. You are a newlywed, (laughs) you are doing so much in the world, but I mean, many of us know you or would recognize you for some of your very viral posts. And you and I have had some pretty big conversations about that, but kind of before we really get into like the grit of your why and what that is, maybe let's personally take people through your story as to why you even cared in the first place to start hosting some of these conversations, because I think what's interesting is I followed you for a while before realizing that you had a personal tie to why you were sharing diet culture and our awareness around it. So kind of lead me through that story a little bit. Definitely. I I always feel like I have to sort of almost like apologize when I go through the story because it feels it's often not coherent, the story, because a lot of it is like, it feels like a big black hole of eating disorder and it just feels like an abs- an absolute blur. I will try my best. So similar to you, actually, I was uh, growing up, I was always like, I was always like a chubby kid. Like that's what I was called, like chubby. Like that's how my granddad described me and like my mum and dad, like I was, I was chubby. So like I, I wasn't fat, but I definitely wasn't thin. And I knew that I was chubby. I was very well aware of it. And I don't know how or why I became so aware of it and so aware that it was a negative thing that I shouldn't be chubby, that I should be thin. But I did anyway, at a super, super young age, I was conscious of my body as well. Like I developed before any of my friends as well. Like I got, boob- I was the first to get boobs and I had huge boobs and everyone was kind of fascinated by them, but it didn't feel that didn't feel like positive attention to me at all. I kind of wanted to just like hide away and And, you know, I would always have my shoulders like super hunched to try and hide my boobs. And I I actually ended up getting a a breast reduction um, in my 20s because I was just so self-conscious of of any kind of self-conscious of my body and my body sticking out, if that makes sense. Or like my body being like noticed. I didn't like that. And I felt that from a really young age. So the moment I became cognizant of dieting, what it was, what it did you know, made you lose weight. 
uh, well, supposedly, I started dieting. And, you know, I, I always say I think it was about around, like it was, it was when I started primary school, which is, I think, high school. No, sorry, secondary school, which is, I think, high school for you guys. Yes, yes. yes. So about 11, 12-ish. And I just started dieting and I tried every diet under the sun. Like I would scour magazines, like discarded magazines that I would find and try and find new diets, new things to do. I went to Weight Watchers. I went to Slimming World. I literally, you name it, I tried it. And what I actually did, you know, my, my sole intention was to lose weight. It's what I wanted desperately more than anything. Like I wanted to be thin. I wanted the attention that came with being thin. I wanted the validation that came with being thin that I saw with my, you know, with my, my thin peers. And despite that weight loss being my sole intention, what actually happened with these various diets, you know, one after the other, after the other, I kind of dieted myself up to a much higher weight. So with every diet, I would initially lose weight and then I would be so starving that I would binge eat for a period of time. And then I'd end up a few pounds heavier than when I had started. And I did this over and over again, each time convinced that this was the diet that was going to work, which obviously it didn't. And so, so yeah, I, I dieted myself. I, I, I say dieted up. I don't really know how else to describe it, but I, I got to you know, I, I I don't even know a specific weight because I had a fear of the scales at that point. I'd always been terrified of the scales, but I continued to try and try and try. And I mean, and I, and I hope this isn't triggering for anyone. Oh, we'll add a warning so we can, people can be aware of that. So you're good. I'm always aware when I tell it because I think it is, but it's my, it's my story and it's what happened yeah, exactly. is that I eventually like juice diet started to become popular. Like Jason Vale, like the master cleanse and people were doing juice diets. And in London, they became suddenly accessible. People would drop off juices at your door every morning. So you'd have five juices for the day. And so I thought I might as well try it. I've tried everything fucking else. Why not? So I ordered the juices. I think I ordered a seven day cleanse. So you have five juices in the day and that's it. You don't eat any food alongside it. Like you're allowed broth. Oh, I've done one. I'm very aware. Oh yeah. Yeah. I didn't know if broth yeah. was like a, Brit- a British thing, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, allowed- yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have broth. broth. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, to me, pretty disgusting. But like when you haven't eaten a thing, when all you've been drinking is is juice all day, it actually tastes amazing. And I, I, so I did this juice diet and I think the super restrictive nature of it kind of unlocked like a darker, like mental state in me, if that makes sense. Like I went from drinking five juices a day to four a day and then three a day and then two a day. And then one, and then eventually I was just um, like sucking on boiled sweets. Like that was just my sustenance. And like, I kind of kept going like that for a while. I, I basically became anorexic. I, you know, I was in the, in the throes of, of anorexia and it was, you know, similar to you. Like I wasn't, I was, I had zero, almost zero sustenance. I was not nourishing my body in any way. I was deeply unhealthy and I was told left, right, and said, I've never been so praised for anything in my life and how I looked during that period, which is crazy and absolutely wild. And it, it was horrifying to hear that because it, it was simultaneously like exhilarating and also horrifying because I knew that I knew that I couldn't, the moment I was going to touch food again, I wouldn't look like that anymore. I couldn't look like that anymore. I couldn't survive or sustain that in any kind of way. And it just got me, it just sent me further and further and further into anorexia, which kind of then morphed into bulimia. And eventually my mum sort of marched me to, to, a, a psychiatrist. I was lucky that I had private health insurance at the time through work. Super lucky because, you know, I'm not really sure about what it's like in, in Canada, but here it's horrendous. Like your BMI has to be incredibly low for you to get help for an eating disorder here. And even then when you do, it's very limited the help that you do get. So I was lucky that with my work, I had private health insurance and I saw a psychiatrist who admitted me and uh, to hospital. And I had a lot of therapy and that period especially is a total like weird blur 
of just kind of chaos because it was weirdly enough you know I, I, I feel like the, the narrative in the media is always with eating disorders there's girl you know young thin white girl gets sick goes gets help and then recovers and it just wasn't like that for me at all like the recovery yeah. was so dark so grim so long and so convoluted and like potentially sort of as just as hard as the eating disorder itself this kind of lasted a couple of years and alongside this I was sharing photos on Instagram fashion and beauty my job was in fashion and beauty at the time I was a journalist and I was just sharing my outfits and the photos that I shared like in my head I wanted them to be as aspirational as possible and to me that equals thin like being thin so I I nipped all my photos nipped and tucked them you know as as soon as I learned how to use the liquefied filter on photoshop that was it like I changed everything like I I wanted to I wanted the image to be perfect I'm still not entirely sure why but it felt really important to me and as I was going through my recovery and I was learning about uh about diet culture really my the therapist that I had was very um focused on diet culture and really wanted to teach me about it and which I I don't think is normally a huge part of eating disorder re- uh, recovery I don't believe but for her it was it was it was the majority and that was actually super powerful because that then my my recovery was kind of rooted in the reason why I was there in the first place or at least a huge part of why I was there in the first place so I started to learn about diet culture through her and then I started to explore it myself and I I think like I, I I don't want to say angry because it feels strong, but I was galvanized into action. Let's say that I really felt like this is so unfair and so directed towards women. Like, where are these st- standards that men are held to, and why have I been told my entire life? Why have I been made to believe that I have to be thin in order to be successful and worthy and desirable and lovable and to get validation from from others? Like, why do why did I believe that that all all of that lied in thinness? And I've got four younger sisters as well. That was a huge part of it. I was like, I, you know, I I genuinely want to. And it sounds I, I hate saying it because it sounds so fucking cliche. But like, that is genuinely what I was like. I want to help. I want to do my bit because I've got a lot to say. I understand this now. I've got firsthand experience. So. And I was realizing that these aspirational photos that I was posting was actually completely at odds with what I was learning and what I was really starting to believe in. So I just made the shift and it was it was a pretty quick shift from those images to like, hang on, this is this is what's really going on. This is behind the scenes. Like, forget those photos that they're not real. They're absolutely not real. Like I have struggled with weight and eating issues my entire life. Like that's more important for me to talk about like I have I have more to offer than a, a stylized edited curated picture I totally get it as a parent there's nothing you care about more than making sure your kid has support as they learn and thrive and even within the best schools sometimes gaps happen your child might not be getting that one-to-one teaching that they need to reach their full potential. And in a classroom with dozens of kids, that makes total sense. At Baiju's Future School, students receive personalized attention and world-class learning experience completely online. This helps supplement their in-person school education. It has small groups and one-on-one learning. Baiju's Future School is committed to helping students become creators and shift from passive to active learning while building schools they'll actually use for the rest of their lives. Baiju's Future School is the leading online learning platform revolutionizing education for millions of students worldwide. Students receive personalized attention with live access to a teacher in one-on-one or one-to-four setting. And they'll have fun learning and exploring subjects with an interactive activity-based curriculum that inspires their creativity and sparks a lifelong love of learning. Baiju's Future School currently offers coding and music courses as well for grades one to 12 and math courses for grades one to eight. And you can keep an eye out because more subjects are launching before you know it. 
Baiju's math and music courses, they help build a foundation of knowledge and self-confidence. And with Baiju's coding course, students explore the fundamentals of coding through their favorite games like Roblox and Minecraft. So they're going to have fun learning about technology that makes modern games, apps, and cryptocurrencies possible. Join the millions of parents who want better learning experience for their children by visiting baijus.com US to get your first class free plus a $25 gift card for Roblox, one of the hottest online gaming platforms in the world. That's com slash US. Let's get back to today's show. Have you ever found weird things in a vagina? Have you found yourself needing multiple partners to fulfill your desires? Hey guys, I'm Dr. Jacqueline Walters, a board-certified OBGYN. It is so important that we know how and when to ask the right questions, whether you're in front of your doctor or just hanging out with your good girlfriends. Now, I wanted to create Dr. Jackie's point of view because sometimes you need to just hear the unfiltered good old Dr. Jackie. I will inspire, uplift, and educate women and men on the who, what, when, and where of things we balance daily. Make sure you subscribe to Dr. Jackie's Point of View and tune in every Thursday. Yeah, it really does make sense to me why you choose to share in the way you do. You have this journalistic background and this major curiosity, but anger and resentment towards why you would end up in a scenario like this in the first place. Somebody who still was, you know, societally widely accepted and for the most part, but still could fall into a trap so deep and so dark. And so you really got into poking around, not only at like what is going on currently, because I think sometimes we can sometimes see it in the right now, but you've gone all the way back. I remember one post you shared and it was a interview with Jerry Hallowell from the Spice Girls. And you brought up, you know, I think she was like being told to like put, to go on a scale or something to say how much she weighed. And all of a sudden it's like the memories flooding back of that's who we were told was somebody in a large body. She was so thin and was scrutinized against, was ridiculed, was made to have her weight be the hugest subject more than being like in this big band and doing these incredible things with her life. It was all, the headlines were about that. Now I do understand as well, British tabloids are like nothing else in this world. There is nothing truly as cruel, I don't believe as that version of a tabloid, but how did you start poking and prodding? And was it through like the lens of curiosity and anger and resentment? Or like, how did you start to recognize that, whoa, diet culture isn't just like here and now it's not social. I love how people are like, social media is the reason this. Yes. Social media is a contributor towards, but before we had apps on our phones, before we were like, knew what it was to facetune our bodies, we were still on diets. We were still doing these things. We were still drinking liquids all day long. So it is a part of the system, but it is not the whole thing. So, you know, through your healing, when did you really start to go in and discover those things? Like the things we saw when I I was in grade seven or eight, when that interview would have come out, I would have been right in those formidable years of like beginning my dieting journey. So when you shared that, it really opened my eyes to, it is so much more than just what we're experiencing in the here and now. It has literally been here and continues to be here all along. Tell me about when you started to kind of wake up to that reality and why you chose to start sharing it. Yeah. So I think this is like how my brain works. Like I can't understand something if I don't understand like everything. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like makes you a great journalist though, I bet. An example. Yeah. I have to get to like the bottom of everything. Otherwise it just doesn't make sense to me. I don't have the full picture and I don't like it. And that when I was made aware of diet culture, I never even heard of that term diet culture before. Yeah. When I was made aware of that, I was like, I need to know more. I need to know what it is. I need to know where it came from. I need to know where it started. And it just kind of led me down a path of discovering some hor- horrifying things. And I went through, I kind of had a, I sort of debated whether or not to share things like that. I was wondering whether it was actually helpful or whether it was triggering. And 
I genuinely believe that in order in order to heal our the pain, the collective pain that diet culture has caused, and also to shift our mindset, we need to go back to the root of it, and we need to pinpoint the beliefs that we internalize and why we internalize them. So, I mean, that the Jerry Halliwell and the, and the Victoria Beckham getting weighed, like that's just they were just examples that are that, that are representative of of that era. You know, and of all the things like I can't, I, I would never be able to even, you know, that, that's the tip of the iceberg with all the diet culture messages that were sent our way and sent our parents' way. But I feel like understanding that we have been bombarded with this stuff from a very young age reinforces the fact that it's conditioning and allows us to to see a way out, allows us to access the deconditioning, if that makes sense, and allows us to eventually shift our mindsets away from idolizing thinness, which is what diet culture is about, and onto, you know, not actually caring which way what our bodies look like. And I think to, to, to me, sharing those moments and talking about those moments is a huge part of like, wow, like this, like let's share and let's talk about our collective pain and what this did to us. And then we can heal and move on from it. That was, that's kind of my thinking. And I know that it worked well for me for me like discovering those things it's all like little light bulb moments I'm like well how can we watch things like this where Jerry Halliwell steps on the scales and she's I don't know tiny and Chris Evans who who is the interviewer goes like great job like oh my god back to baby weight you know like uh, pre-baby weight sorry like how can we watch those things consume them and not internalize messages from that that thinness is better and that thinness is admired and you know, it is to be desired above all else. Yeah. And to also like talk about the conditioning is to recognize like the male gaze. And part of me is become very aware that through media, through television, through, you know, all of these things. And let's be honest, the porn industry, the male gaze has also been conditioned. It's been conditioned to believe that it is one way because at the end of the day, and I think this is where you get to get real mad, is it's a highly profitable thing for women to hate their bodies. It just is a very profitable thing. If you go back and you count in your life how many diets you've tried, how much money you've spent on it, you'll you'll become very aware of this. It actually doesn't work. It never has. It is like, I think they say like 98% of people actually find any sort of like long lasting weight loss from a diet. So in the reality of it, and I might be wrong on that stat, but something around that, a very high percentage. So they, they're they just taking something and redoing it over and over and over again. And we keep buying it because this desperation and this conditioning that that is the most important part of us, that is where we're going to find joy and experience life and have you know, uh, relationships and have love and experience all of that. But it is still, I mean, when we talk about the low hanging fruit of a tree and the roots of it, it's still hard because you're like, but here I am chilling out being the, like with the low hanging fruit. And I understand that this is all here, but the roots of it are so far gone in a way. How can I actually make an impact? And I think, can you kind of speak to how, when we talk about like the little bits of unconditioning for yourself, as you've learned, because I think it is hard when we see it and we're like, yep, I see it now. I can see it right there. I see why my mother did that. I see why I felt that way. But can you talk to how it actually has made an impact on you and through the healing of doing this work and doing it all, what the real result has been for you? Because let's be honest about it and it can be good, bad, ugly, whatever, but honest about where you stand today from doing this work? The the deconditioning has been the biggest mindset shift that I've ever had in my life and also provided me the most positive change I've ever made for myself in my life. Because I, you know, like I said, I spent up until, I don't know, 28, 30 probably, thinking that the I, I wasn't worth anything if I wasn't thin and if I didn't look a certain way, if I didn't look good and if I wasn't attractive. And of course, attractive in this world is often equated to thinness. Yes. So I spent my life believing that. And then and the de- deconditioning actually has taken a really long time. And that's something that I think is important to recognize. And it's not like overnight you're going to be like, oh, yeah, cool. 
cool. Like, I don't need to be thin. Like, it just doesn't work like that. And, you know, people say, like, what was a turning point or what was like your aha moment, like a pivotal moment where you were like, you know, it's self-acceptance. I've changed. I've gone from self-hate to self-love. And I always say that, like, that, I think, is sort of a false narrative like pushed by the media because it sounds way more sexy like it's you can package it up like way more sexily as like a a light bulb moment but actually it's like so much tiny little like imperceptible bits of progress that just stack on top of each other until they make something that looks like genuine real progress and I honestly believe that that was the case for me it was just it was it was at first noticing you know you know just sort of being aware of diet culture like trying to spot it trying to identify it and then debunking it Mm -hmm. and learning as well like I I always advocate like education around this topic because I swear like that is the right really important thing that you can learn some like super important things that the idea that thinness is desirable is it is conditioning if you go to certain parts of Africa there's like brides that are are fed like they're force fed ahead of their wedding day in order to meet a certain weight you know higher a high weight yeah so it it is conditioning and it's and it's because it's because being thin is hard for us to do and therefore we need help doing it and that help costs us money and time and energy and as Christy Harrison says you can't smash the patriarchy on an empty stomach so it keeps us obedient as well it keeps women obedient and focused on this never-ending, constantly evolving project where the goalposts are, you know, forever shifting and moving away because there is no end goal. It's not like you'll reach a certain number on the scales and your, you know, you know your 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 diet culture journey is over. It doesn't work like that. It's there is there is no no end goal. That pot of gold that we're supposed to find at the end of the rainbow when we meet thinness isn't there. It's not true. It's, it's like this, this whole idea of thinness being the key to everything and the key to happiness is just arbitrary, essentially. I've totally forgotten what you asked me. I'm so sorry. No, (laughs) no, no, no. You answered it absolutely perfectly. So in the new year, we tend to really crave normalcy. And that is like a huge benchmark of like, okay, I want to have more salads. I want to have more greens. Like I'm my, your body actually gets to a point where it's like, I've been so sentient. I'm not sentient. I've been so like, whatever it's called to like not be moving around a lot. And I need to do something. I need to be moving. I need to be creating change in my life. And these positive notions in this like nutritional desires that our bodies often like trigger can go into like diet culture. It gets really, really, really confusing. Do you still now all these years later have that bit of a struggle? Cause I find every January I have this conversation with myself where I'm like, I don't actually want to be in a diet, but I do crave some sort of like consistency, normalcy, maybe eating more vegetables, but that doesn't mean that I'm dieting. Have you come to those places before where you sort of are grappling between, am I dieting or do I crave this food for a certain nutritional reason? Where's this balance that we personally find without it being a diet. Cause I'll be honest, sometimes I'll be out and I'll be like, I just genuinely don't want to eat that big meal. I know how it makes me feel. I know that I feel really icky or whatever. And to be fair, my favorite thing to order at a restaurant is a salad because it's one of the hardest things for me to make at home. But then I'm like, am I perpetuating it? Cause I'm eating a salad out and, and it gets really confusing as you're kind of scaling out of diet culture to even grasp what is it that I need? What is it that my body wants? And am I still in diet culture? Talk to me about your experience, especially as somebody who is really deeply in an eating disorder, kind of that life afterwards and grappling between, is it a diet or is it what we have? I I hate the word wellness because I think it's just a diet now, but in our overall wellness, when we start to crave that kind of change and how do we sort of differentiate what's what? And I think what you're saying, this like huge gray area is why January is such a perfect storm because you've got the overindulgence of Christmas. Plus it's a new year. It's seen as a fresh start. We're supposed to turn over a new leaf. And what does that mean for a lot? of people for most people weight loss so you have this perfect storm anyway 
like last year, I kind of went through this of being like, am I dieting or am I just listening to my body? And I think that comes down to essentially like the why, like your reasons behind what you're doing, you know, is it because I'm listening to my body and my, my body doesn't want that? Like, or is it because I'm trying to conform to it, to what society's telling, you know, a standard of beauty that society's holding, holding up to me. So I think it's about like exploring your why, but you know, there is absolutely nothing wrong, is there with, you know, we went to Paris uh, last week for five days and we ate so much. And at the end, like that, at the weekend, we were like, we want salads, we want something fresh and light. Like I didn't want anything fried or anything heavy. And like, that's cool. That's intuitive eating, isn't it? Like that's listening to your body, what you want and what your body wants. But I find Christmas difficult around food. I always have. Like at Christmas has always been a really difficult period for me to the point where I used to hate it because of all the the excess of food and the excess consumption like I found it really hard to navigate and I still do I've still got that leftover like that hangover from the eating disorder days so I actually find I don't find January difficult because I just get back to you know like my normal life and then the diet culture stuff doesn't really bother me but I I have to admit that I find Christmas quite difficult I feel like you know, the the loss of control around eating because I still have issues, around, not issue, I don't know the right word, but I still, you know, I'm not sure that I will ever be 100% okay around food. I'm not sure I'll ever be one of these people that just don't think about food, eat when they're hungry and stop when they're full. I think I will always have that with, carry that with me. And that's okay. Like I've, I've totally made peace with that. So Christmas, I do find a bit tricky and the talk of so much excessive food and the consumption. And yeah, I, I don't know about you, but I find that quite hard. And I think most people who have suffered from an eating disorder do find that quite difficult to, nav- to navigate, like the festive period. Yeah. And I think ultimately it comes down to, I'm somebody who's like completely undiagnosed on everything. So I I would assume that I had a form of anorexia. I could assume that I had forms of binge eating and, and the holidays can really bring that up because I don't know what it's like for other people, but when I get to any sort of social anything, I'm very hyper aware of all the food in the room and it becomes like the overarching, like I, I can't stop thinking about it. And I now I don't really like it's almost like Riley Lester on Instagram brought up, you know, Halloween candy, for instance, and how the fact that when we we deprive ourselves of something like a chocolate candy snack, then all of a sudden exist around it. It would make sense that we would have like 80 of them. But she was like, I've had things sitting on my counter since last September and they're still there because I ate four of them when I wanted to and then never touched them again. Mm -hmm. So the holidays, I think a lot of times can kind of bring the little bits of diet culture that maybe you didn't even weren't even aware that we're there to the forefront. Cause I, you know, around the holidays, I'll be like, oh my gosh, like desserts, sweets, like heavy foods, like mashed potatoes and gravy, like all of these different things that aren't a normal part of my day. And then all of a sudden it's like, it does become this, oh my gosh, I don't know when I'm going to have it again. So I need to have all of it. And you kind of lose that little bits of intuitive eating because it's like, oh, it's the holidays and oh, it's this. And, and then you kind of fall into that. Oh my gosh, I don't feel good. And what did I do? And these guilt, it really does blow up and magnify for a lot of people what, even through healing, what it's like to exist around food in the aftermath of being in diet culture or always being in it. And I remember too, when I was like in the thick of my diet culture, I would be like repeating in my head over and over and over, like that if I said no to things that it was okay. And that that was like good control. And I was like a good this was good behavior. And so I would say no so much to things that it was like, I got to kind of walk through the room having the smallest amount. And then I would experience like great sadness. And so there is sort of like, when we talk about balance, there is sort of like that bit of how do I enjoy intuitively and have this experience with my friends, family, food is like a connector for so many of us and still trust ourselves to be around it without feeling like we have to go overboard in terms of control, but also like an awareness and then understanding that no matter where you land on that, January might be tough. January might be tough. January might feel like a lot of different things. And there is more than one answer to why you feel that. Right. You know, I realized I said like, January is fine for me. I don't want to like minimize anyone else's experience because January is so triggering for so many people because you're surrounded by 
talk of weight loss, new ways to lose weight. I don't know about in Canada, but like our TV channels just become full of like new experimental programs of like weight loss and exploring weight loss and exploring obesity, you know, the epidemic and a lot of scaremongering. So January is a really, really like horrible, like scary time for a lot of people. But I think you just have to, you know, and, and this is when I go back to education as well, like just if you learn about diet culture, what it is, why it exists, why it thrives, why it's such a huge industry, you'll be able to spot that in January. You spot, you can see exactly what's going on and you don't necessarily need to buy into it. And that's not to say you won't. And if you do, have compassion for yourself because you're human. You've been conditioned this way and it's not going to go overnight. So if you're drawn into it, just recognize it and maybe just question it. I feel like if that's the least you can do, just question it and like why do I why do I feel this way why am I thinking about losing weight why do I want to go on a diet and you know neither you or I are saying don't go on a diet because body autonomy you can do whatever you want but question it think about why and think about what it's actually going to bring you or do for you if if this is the year that you finally lose weight like will it really bring you what you think it will now you you kind of brought up this one thing about, you know, in different cultures and the way that brides are treated. And you recently got married. And I remember I was just in like the first couple years of my body acceptance, confidence, whatever you want to call it, when I got married. And I thought that I was like in a good spot until you had to buy a dress and still fit into it nine, 10 months later. And I remember I would be on Pinterest just looking up decorations and there would be all these ads. Now, since then, Pinterest is now banned diet ads, which I think is phenomenal. But how was now the experience of going through getting married at, you know, in the middle of healing when it is, there's like these certain points in life when it comes to like getting married after having a baby, we like January is another big one too, where like this pressure and this spotlight tends to come to your body again. How was that experience for you? It was tricky, actually. It was it was complicated. And I think more complicated than I imagined it was going to be. Mm. Complicated initially because during lockdown, I put on weight. Yeah. I, who who didn't? Know, who didn't, right? Who didn't? And I, <laughs> I first went for a dress fitting just after lockdown, like just as lockdown was lifting. And I'd obviously, I'd obviously put on this weight and I was like shocked to find that I I didn't really have access to many dresses Mm. to try on despite me being like a max like 16 which is a 12 I think in Canada yeah and that was demoralizing it didn't feel good it didn't feel nice to like not really have any options there was like one that they that in in a much bigger size that they just kind of pinned at the back, but like I couldn't try on like the normal like sample yeah, size yeah, dresses, yeah. like they just wouldn't go anywhere near me, and that felt shit. But I did work on that, you know. I've still got a therapist, and I still do therapy, and um, one of the best things I do for myself, I've got mm-hmm, to say. Mm-hmm. And I took I took it to her, and we hashed it out, and I really, you know, sort of came to terms with that and felt better about that. And then as lockdown lifted, and I got back to my normal life, which is you know, running around every day, I lost weight, something that I found really hard to navigate as well, yeah. <laughs> you know, while still being in this space, because I, I feel even though I don't owe anyone did apology, people notice? I, they did. I've had like, okay. four, probably since the start of this year, probably I've had like, yeah, actually the start of this year, I've had like just messages here and there, you know, being like, you've lost weight. Doesn't this go against your message? Blah, blah, blah. Isn't it contradictory, which it's not. And I know it's not. Like I, my my body is allowed to fluctuate. Just as I put on weight, I've lose weight, and I actually I'm the size I was now before lockdown. But I don't also don't want to feel like I'm having to justify it, you know. So it's kind of I was I was I was like gradually and not even really noticing it, but just like losing weight as everything was going on and people, you know, like I said, started to noticing started noticing it and asking, is it because you're getting married later this year or? And I just found the whole thing a fucking nightmare and I'm allowed to swear of course you are yeah okay good (laughs) I found it really hard really triggering it it almost like brought back some of the old like eating disorder thoughts just the feeling as well as being so in the spotlight 
you know like we yeah we take pictures for Instagram but like that's you and one other person taking your picture I know that doesn't make sense because it's going out to a lot of people but it just doesn't feel as scary and big and yeah I I as having all that attention on you for one day so yeah it was really it was really hard it was very difficult and I had to like do work again with my therapist to like make sure that I didn't do I didn't intentionally lose weight or do any diets because at one point I felt like that's what everyone was expecting of me and like should I just fucking do it like if that's what everyone wants from me should I just do it and I'm just so glad I didn't because I was my healthiest best self on the day I was nourished I was you know I enjoyed it I enjoyed it I enjoyed the run-up like I ate whatever I wanted and I it was just yeah I'm just I'm, I'm glad I did but it's really difficult and it's really really hard and that was with me people knowing you know not to say things to me because they know about what I speak about they know not Mm. to talk about weight but that was still me soaking it up from like all the expectations and all the pressures so yeah I I I found it really hard I have a theory that a lot of bridezillas are just born out of being undernourished women who have had this ideal put on them that they have to be very small and thin and then please pump out a baby like immediately and then like lose it and get back to like your wedding dress and hang on to that. I actually got rid of my wedding dress and and I was really sad about it later, but I realized how many times in diet culture, I saw people use their wedding dress as like a moment of, I fit back into the dress. And I thought, I, as much as I love it. And now I wish I kept it. Cause I wish I, my kids could try it on or something, but I, I consigned it away. Cause I was like, that's, you know, responsible. And I wanted to be, I love, I loved the sisterhood of the dress. And so I let it go, but I really recognize how much we really use that day as like our best ever moment or anything like that. Or if it's not that, and we lose weight later, then the dress is used as a way to like show how much you've gotten away from who you were that day. And it's fascinating because as we sit here and almost ironically talk about our bodies and our experiences through this world, ultimately telling people that we're more than bodies, the highlight being how did you feel on your wedding day? You're getting married. That is a huge, huge commitment. And yet look at the distractors. Look at what's there. It's about how thin you were that day, how you will use that size of your body to benchmark your body over the rest of your life, how you will. I mean, I even saw a video not long ago of like an 80 year old woman trying on her wedding dress and they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe she still fits into her dress. You are held to that forevermore. You think you ever get a break from it? You don't. So We have these conversations to kind of bring that awareness, not to make you think about it all the time, but to not think about it so much because you're already thinking about your body all the time. Everybody's already dealing with that, dealing with the pressure. It's there everywhere. And one of my favorite things that you and I have both talked about is how those goalposts change. Let's talk about that for a quick second before we kind of tail off and talk about a couple other things as we wrap up. But every decade is a different body standard, isn't it? You and I have both studied it. And I mean, in the last few years, we've seen this huge rise in like butt exercises and there's butt pads and there's butt this and butt that because of the Kardashian era. We really want these like curvy things, which they modeled after. I mean, there's a lot of roots of racism in how diet culture has moved along as well. It's even the BMI scale is measured upon a white male has nothing to do with like the genetic differences of race and all of those different things. But ultimately, over the decades, every single decade is a different standard for a body. When you started looking into that, did it shock you as much as it shocked me? Or were you like, no, this this adds up? I was stunned. Yeah. Absolutely stunned. And I feel like a lot of what we internalize kind of goes unquestioned. You know, at one point, like in the 90s it was like does my bum look big in this yes and now it's like does my bum look small in this Mm. you know and it kind of because we go with the times it goes unchallenged and unquestioned so to to see it when you research it and you see it laid out in black and white like actually it's it it the beauty standard is forever changing and forever evolving. So we can't win. We can't ever meet the beauty standard because it's not going to be that for long. You know, the the Kardashian look, 
you know, I don't really know how else to, to, to sort of refer to it, but, you know, the very curvy, the sort of slim, thick, yeah. you know, curvy, but still thin, like that's not going to be in, in I don't know, however long, but there's going to be a new ideal, like a new yeah. standard of beauty. So chasing that standard is just, is so futile because we can never, we just can't keep up. And it's, it stunned me to like see it all laid out like that. And, and mm. also like made me so frustrated because where's that for men? Yeah. Where's their, where's their like ideal body ev- evolution throughout the decades? They don't have one. Like, I okay, know. maybe, you know, since the advent of like Love Island, it, it's, you know, it's more in fashion for men to be like super ripped. And I don't, you know, I don't want to take away from male, you know, beauty standards because they do exist, but to nowhere near the extent that no. women, female beauty standards exist. And it, it's, it, it almost makes me feel a bit sick, but yeah, we have, we have, it's not our fault, but that we have gone along with it for so long. And my parents, you know, our parents' generation and the generation before them as well have also tried to adhere and conform to this random, like super random, like arbitrary standard, like that generally sort of originates from the celebrity of the moment. And we're wasting so much time and energy and money on what? <laughs> like, it's so stupid. It's like, so true. Big, yeah. Like if, if I, if I get a big bum now, if I have BBL or whatever, if I get a big bum, like, and what, and, and then what, like, am I suddenly going to be happy? Like, am I suddenly going to be more successful or like, you know, is, is anyone going to love me more? No, Yeah. it doesn't actually, it doesn't actually mean anything, but we're led to believe that it does. Again, it's not our fault. We, it's, it's, you know, we're, we're made to believe that this is like, as women, this is our thing. Like this is our achievement in life like we should be pretty we should be desirable we should be nice to look at and you know the men go out and do the important stuff sorry I got very um... no I was gonna say like even look at like the people magazine sexiest man alive and how it was Paul Rudd and people are like he's the sexiest man alive and I was like but live in a world where men can be funny and aging and be the sexiest man alive and women are like you have to reverse that. You have to like a good personality is so secondary to your looks. I, we don't do the sexiest woman alive, but would we see somebody who was funny and in their fifties as a woman be the sexiest woman alive? Like that's going to take a lot of work. And then we look at, you know, when we talk about the decades and the changing of everything year by year and the standards and the goalposts that move, there's part of me that is curious if, we think it's going to ultimately change and how if if the if it'll kind of blow up at some point because i'm looking at some of the biggest influencers in this like victoria's secret suddenly scrambling to save their brand by diversifying having different body sizes having different sizes even available in their stores but i think they made a very huge error they removed the angels they removed the runway show and they said we're not going to do this anymore i dm'd them they never replied but i dm'd them and i was like i think you're making a mistake you need to show everybody that every if everybody is an angel let them all walk and instead you removed the show and said we're not going to participate this anymore and instead we're going to just add more diversity and put different body sizes and it is a scramble but i'm just like you still removed the opportunity for like them to walk the runway your iconic runway that you did where the women talked about how they starved themselves before those shows how we saw the Heidi Klum 11 days postpartum who changed every woman postpartum forevermore when we knew what could be for one woman and what always felt like failure for the rest of us. I think we're still missing a lot there in terms of like social responsibility, but I do, I am so curious to see what the world looks like in 10 years. And if we will have an ideal body standard or if there will eventually it'll just blow up and we are going to have this wide open lens of the facets in which women can show up in this world and them all be a form of like, I, it's not profitable, but it almost is starting to be right. The brands were drowning by, by perpetuating beauty standards and other ones were thriving. You know, we saw Fenty with Rihanna. We saw so many brands thrive within that market being unmet but do you think it'll ultimately change the system overall? Or do you think this is just kind of a new marketing thing that's going to happen? I don't know. I'm curious because I'm so interested to see where we are in 10 years. Me too. I think it's a bit of both. I think it's definitely 
like body positivity has obviously like been commodified and there's been a lot mm. of brands that have kind of jumped on the wagon and stuff. But I I can't see how we're making su- such shifts like collectively without it having a huge impact. Mm. Again, like I am I am in a bubble. Like we are in a bubble. Like yeah, I think we you know, Go on like TikTok, my... the bubbles burst. But in our bubble, yes. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. TikTok brings me back down to earth very quickly because my, you know, my Instagram feed is like perfect. Like it's full of like amazing, inspiring women, like super diverse. And then like, yeah, TikTok just like shoots me straight down. I actually don't know the answer. I, I feel like we can't, I feel like too much is happening for it, for it not to move to move on and to move away from beauty standards. But at the same time, I don't know, like the power of, of things like TikTok, which is, you know, dominated by the younger generation. I feel like that they, those two things are at odds. And I don't know like which one's kind of going to win or whether they're just going to both simultaneously like grow together. I don't know. I think like our generation is really sort of tapping into like self-acceptance and diet culture and understanding but I'm not entirely sure about the about the younger generations and I think I think only time will tell but I think that I I I worry about like idolizing thinness like that's so ingrained in our culture and our society and has been for so long that I can't see that suddenly changing but you know, in, in, but who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But you're right about Victoria's Secret. And I didn't actually think about that. I didn't think about them missing a trick there, but they did when they got rid of that show, uh, when they got rid of the angels, because that is like proof then that they were only doing it for the male gaze. Cause they were getting rid of the, the angels who, you know, like embodied what, uh, you know, a, a male fantasy. So yeah, you're right. I, I actually, I went to the Victoria's Secret show when it was in, I went I think I went twice and when I was in Paris and when I was in London I was a journalist and I was interviewing the angels backstage and my assignment was just to get a line from each of them about what they'd done before the show like how they'd managed to look the way they did on the on the day and I got some horrifying lines about it like some crazy stuff but like it's still so weird to me that at the time I didn't even that didn't seem strange to me. I just remember thinking like, because I think like cameras are so deceiving as well. Like when you watch the runway, the Victoria's Secret runway, they look sort of like statuesque and uh, like super present. And actually like, I remember thinking backstage, gosh, they, they look, they did look really fragile and thin. And this is not me thin shaming, but like they, they, you know, they had taken great lengths to look like that as well. Like they, they all told, you know, they all told me like, there was no, like, let's talk about something else. It was like, yeah. Okay. So I did this and I did that. And we've done that, this and that, like, it was almost like a badge of honor. Like here's like, here's the disordered way that I have, you know, made myself look like I do today. So yeah, they missed a trick by not just having like an amazing, like diverse array of angels on the runway that would have sent out a far better message than this. Like what you say, like it's it's just a scramble to save their reputation and save their brand. Yeah. Well, years ago, I remember NYX used to do like the Toronto underwear brand used to do a street runway show and it was like, everybody is an angel. And I remember when that first Victoria's Secret, the one that really like exploded their whole brand and brought them down a little bit. And I remember just taking a picture of myself in my underwear, my like high rise up over my belly button, call them granny panties. If you want, they're effing comfortable. I don't care. And I drew wings on myself and I was like, no, like we don't, nobody gets to define this for us. So this isn't, this isn't our narrative. And I look back on that now and I'm like, and then there was people like Rihanna who kind of just brought it all home for us by making this different runway show. And we're like, talk about it. It wasn't, it was just the hottest thing I've ever seen. And I think right. at the end of the day, when you start to like recognize that, and I think that's one of the most healing things I've ever done is see the hotness and the beauty and just so many different people and to not have right. myself. That's the one thing that's made me feel honestly, there was times where I'm like, I actually look and feel better in a curvier shape and size in some regard, even if I'm still struggling through some of those feelings and like that feeling of like looking at my pre-baby size, I'm like, 
I don't know. There's like some, like it's something about seeing somebody else. Like Sydney Bell would be a really great example. She has, you know, a stomach that was similar to mine and she rocks these like string bikinis. And I'm like, damn, I kind of, I kind of love, I love, like, why am I suddenly attracted to this? Like it is mind blowing what this work ultimately does. Even if it feels like counterintuitive to talk about your body or to have these discussions or looking at the whys and bringing up these questions for yourself or, you know, diversifying who you follow and all those different things. But I'm telling you at the end of the day, the conditioning that work can, the unconditioning can too. And even if they're combative at times, I do think that it is doing something. And the only reason I know that it is, is because I have gone through the biggest struggles of my like life in terms of my body in the last year. And I haven't missed out on anything. I have not missed out on any part of life. Right. And I think that that is ultimately, it doesn't mean that it all goes away. It just means that you become really aware and like that awareness also brings inspiration sometimes and it can make you angry and it can add that fire to your gut and make you keep going. And I think that's, what's so important about what you're doing is it's it's doing the work in asking ourselves that why, why, why do I feel this way? And ultimately removing, like we talk about how shame doesn't work, but self-shame is involved in that. We are, we self-shame ourselves so much over why we are the way we are, why we have eating disorders, why we're going on diets, why we're struggling with this, why we, you know, try on 15 outfits before leaving the house. And I think when you are posting and you're doing those deep dives, it's kind of doing the work of like, it's actually not you. Like it's, it's the whole bloody system. And like you said earlier, it's all about keeping us obedient, obedient to the patriarchy. I mean, that should be, that should be on a t-shirt straight up. Maybe that can be next on your next bathing suit. Um, honestly, but it's, it's, it's really just creating that awareness of what is really going on and allowing ourselves that room to show a little bit compassion through what we're navigating in every single day. So I appreciate you. I appreciate your work because it has changed my life. And your story, while similar to mine, has really helped me land with somebody else that I know is going through it in a lot of ways too. So thank you so much. Tell everyone where they can kind of find you, dive in and like what what you're up to right now. Yeah. Oh, that was very nice. Thank you. That was a lovely outro. I like that. <laughs> I'm going to record that. You're like welcome. So nice. <laughs> um, yeah. So I am on, on Instagram at Alex Light underscore LDN, which stands for London and not licensed dietitian. Oh my gosh. <laughs> often, there's a bit of confusion. I never knew that. Yeah. I didn't even know what LDN like, was for. I'm just always like Alex LDN. Like what? I just say it. I know, I know. It's just I it was just stuck. I did it ages ago because I was like, oh, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. Like, cool. Girl, my handle's um, the bird's papaya. I know about things that stuck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's really pretty though. The bird's yeah, papaya is thank so pretty. You. <laughs> um so yeah, you can find me there. And I've got a podcast too, The Light Show. It's called and Sarah will have been on it by the yes, time yes, this. Yes is live uh so yeah that's that's me thank you so much for having me I'm honestly I'm honored to to be here and to be talking to you it means so, thank so, you so much. much honestly and I'm so excited for people to go check out your page because it is one of the most informative conversational things and you never introduce shame into any category it's more of a huh like huh kind of let's, is the result of it, right it's like let's, let's question. talk about this let's question it not like this person shouldn't be doing it but just like let's be aware. And I'll never forget that one post that you went the most viral over in the last year was the magazine covers of best and worst of the beach bodies. And I mean, talk about it's right in your face. You might see it and bypass it, but when you actually looked and were aware of what is going on still in media today, it'll blow your mind and make you get the right kind of fire in your belly. That's like, you know what? At the end of the day, all those people went to the beach and that should be the conversation we're having. That should be what we're focused on. And don't let yourself get distracted by all this bullshit in between. Yeah. And we know it's bullshit. And let's show our like daughters, our sisters, our moms, mm-hmm. like our friends that it's bullshit as well, because it's everyone bullshit. needs to hear it. Yeah. Not everyone is as knowledgeable about this topic now, you know. Yeah, I 100% agree. Long and short of it. Thank you so much for your time and for Thank you. your story and sharing this time with us. I appreciate you so much. And for everyone listening, I'm going to have all the information in the show notes for you as well. Check out Alex. Her work is absolutely incredible and will really 
help you with that unconditioning, especially in a time like now when it is all about profiting off of how you feel. Fight that and do it in the best ways possible with a lot of compassion. We will see you next week. Well, friends, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to today's episode. For more information on this episode, check out the show notes or find us on Instagram at the Papaya Podcast. And if you loved what you just listened to or know somebody who would, please share it. Simply screenshot today's episode in the podcast app and share it to your Instagram stories. And don't forget to tag us. Last but not least, if you'd like to lend your personal support to the podcast, take a moment and leave a review on iTunes. We would be oh so grateful. Tune in next week for a fresh new episode of the Papaya Podcast, and we'll see you then.